Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, the entire chapter. I'm going to entitle I'm going to entitle this chapter The Gospel is Light and the Gospel is a Treasure. Our context is this in chapter 3, Paul has talked all about how he is a minister of the new covenant as opposed to the old Mosaic covenant. He called the old Mosaic covenant the letter that kills. The new covenant is the spirit that gives life. So that's where we are. We start with verse 1 in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, Paul says, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, since we have been transformed from glory to glory, we can look at the last two verses in the previous chapter and get the context. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 through 18 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when Paul says, because we're being transformed from image to, from glory to glory, we don't give up. Or therefore could be, because, therefore, because we have this ministry. Therefore, we don't give up because we have this ministry of producing life in people and 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 revealing Christ to people who can look at Jesus with unveiled faces and be transformed from glory to glory. At any rate, it's not exactly clear what Paul says that therefore is therefore, but what he's saying is we have this ministry, and because we have this ministry, this glorious ministry, and because we were shown mercy, we don't give up. Now, why might Paul be tempted to give up? Well, because he had a very, very hard life. In the natural, how many trials and tribulations were connected with his ministry? The shipwrecks, the beatings, the floggings, the trials before magistrates, the stonings, the sleepless nights, the the fastings when he was hungry, the shipwrecks. Well, yeah, it would be real easy to give up if you lived a life like that. But because he had that glorious ministry and because of the mercy that Christ showed him, he, he, kept, he kept going. He didn't give up when things got bad. And I think Paul is a good example because he's an extreme example. If if Paul cannot give up, given the tribulations that he went through, how much more can should we not give up because of the troubles we have, which are probably going to be a little bit less than Paul's? Paul says we have this ministry. What ministry is referring to? That's the ministry of the new covenant. In chapter 3, verse 6 of Second Corinthians, Paul has said this, He made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Ministers of a new covenant. That's the ministry that he's talking about. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit produces life. We go to verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Instead, we have renounced secret things. Instead means instead of giving up. Instead of giving up and falling back into the world, Paul has renounced shameful secret things. Not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. Now, Paul is making a backhanded reference to his opponents there in Corinth, the false apostles who were competing against his word and his integrity. And Paul says, we have renounced shameful secret things. The implication is that his opponents have not renounced those shameful secret things. Now, when Paul says this, he doesn't mean that he used to be doing the shameful secret things and now he's not doing them anymore. That's not what he's doing. He's saying yeah, he, he's, he's renounced the things his opponents were doing. The rabbis, of course, a lot of these opponents of Paul were Judaizers, legalists. 
And the rabbis were notoriously guilty of sexual sin, and so maybe he figures that some of these opponents are covering up sexual sin. At any rate, Corinth was famous for sexual sin, and some in Corinth apparently taught fornication was no sin. As Adam Clark says, you read 1 Corinthians, you can tell that. And I can give an example. They did this discipline the man that was living with his stepmother. In another place he said, he talked about being joined with a prostitute. That might have been in 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, but the point is, is that Corinth was full of prostitutes, and apparently, Adam Clark says, some people were saying, well, that's no big deal. Well, they obviously didn't think the man sleeping with a stepmother was a big deal. So Paul is is slamming these people who are condoning, at least, if not practicing shameful, secret, sexual things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message. Now, when he refers to deceit, he's talking about his opponents and some of the things they were trying to deceive the Corinthians about concerned Paul. For example, his opponent said he was preaching for money. No, he wasn't. He was preaching for Jesus. He didn't have any money. His opponent said he wasn't coming to Corinth directly as soon as he had originally planned. He had changed his plans because he didn't care about the Corinthians. A lie. Deceit. His opponent said that Paul's gospel was so lousy, he was ashamed to take offerings for it. It's a lie. It's deceit. He He didn't take money because he didn't want people to think he was preaching the gospel for profit. His opponent said his stature, Paul's stature was short, and his speech was unimpressive, so his word could not be trusted. So on and on and on these, these, these opponents go, deceiving the people, deceiving the Corinthians, and distorting the message of God, distorting the gospel, distorting God's message, as he puts it. How did they distort God's message? Well, for example, they said there was no resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. For example, in the previous chapter, chapter 3, we learned all about the Mosaic law that kills. What was Paul doing? He was complaining against legalists who were saying that obedience to the Mosaic law would lead to salvation. They were distorting God's message. Now, when Paul says that he was commending himself to every person, every person's conscience in God's sight, he is making a reference to the fact that the other people, his opponents, are trying to do everything in man's sight to please men, not to please God. Paul, in another scripture, pointed out that he never did that. Galatians 1.10, For am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? Or am I striving to please people? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question that expects a no answer. Paul continues in Galatians 1.10, If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Paul was not a people pleaser. He preached it like it was, and he didn't care if it was to his own hurt. And people got mad at what he said, angry at what he said. Now, Paul commends himself to every person's conscience. He's saying, look, examine your conscience and tell you whether your conscience tells you that I'm a hypocrite and a false apostle. You look at your conscience. You know darn well that your conscience is going to tell you that I am preaching in integrity here. Paul not only appealed to the Corinthians' conscience, he appealed to his own conscience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, we read this. Paul says this, For this is our confidence, the testimony of our conscience, is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you, with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. Now when Paul says he is preaching in with an open display of the truth, he's commending himself to the Corinthians with an open display of the truth, he's referring, of course, to the false apostles who are doing everything secretly. He's implicitly calling the false apostles hypocrites, as John Gill says. Paul, I had the same problem with people preaching a hypocritical doctrine. In Ephesians 5.12, he says, For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. So people usually, when they sin with false doctrine or bad morals, they do it secretly. 
They do it, don't do it openly because people, because of the fact that they're made in the image of God, tend to instinctively shrink away from sin, and so they have to sin secretly. But Paul says, you look at me. I did everything openly. You know, I'm an open book. So I, that, that, therefore, I can commend myself to your conscience, and you can judge whether I'm a false apostle or not, or whether, I should, whether you should be listening to my opponents or whether you should be listening to me. When Paul says he commends himself to the other conscience, he's referring to a question he had asked in the last chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some, letters of, letters, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And, of course... What he's trying to say is, I don't need a letter of recommendation because I am who I am, but my opponents, they need letters of recommendation. And now I hate to be bragging, I hate to be commending myself to you and saying how great I am, but I have to because I'm being attacked. My apostleship is being attacked by opponents. And so, unfortunately, I'm commending myself to you again. But then, right here in chapter 4, he says, yeah, I'm committing myself to you, all right, but look at your conscience, and I'm openly preaching the truth. I've renounced shameful things. I'm walking in integrity. So I, that's how I commend myself, not with a letter of recommendation, but with my life. We go now to verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4. But if our gospel is veiled, Paul continues, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Perhaps people are referring to the fact that people can't understand what Paul is teaching. And he says, well, if they are, if they don't understand what I'm teaching, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's because they're dying in their sins. They're perishing. It's their fault. It's their sin that's keeping them from understanding. Now, this veiling metaphor that Paul has used a lot in chapter 3, he referred, he used the veil in three ways in the last chapter. One of the ways was the fact that the Jews at that time, or people in general, probably the Jews, were blocked off from the truth because they had a veil over their hearts. They didn't understand anything, and that veil was a veil of of a veil which caused ignorance. We read in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 18, we are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. That's the glory that Moses had when he was in when the presence of God. But their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Even to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and so forth. So that's the, what he's referring to. Veiled means veiled so that you can't understand. And he says if our gospel is veiled so that people can understand, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. It is not veiled to those who have an unveiled face and who look at the glory of Christ directly. Now, when Paul says our gospel, we ought to emphasize our gospel. He's, that's the editorial we. He means his gospel. But if our gospel is veiled, he's contrasting that with the gospel of the false apostles in Corinth. So he says our gospel is veiled. I'll, I'll confess that. I'll admit that. But it's only veiled to those who are perishing. So it's not my fault if you don't understand. We go now to verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, talking about those who are perishing the lost, in their case, or in the case of the lost, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the God of this age, some people have debated as to who that is. Most people say it's the devil, and I think that's who it is. Some people say it's God, God the Father, and that God has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. 
I think it's really the devil here that's done that. Now, of course, we need to we need to point out that the reason that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers is because the unbelievers have deliberately chosen not to search for God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. In other words, they deserve to have their minds blinded. I know oftentimes you could read this verse and say, well, gee, it's not really the sinner's fault. He can't see because the devil blinded him. The devil blinded him. The devil made him not believe. And so you cast the, the, the responsibility off of, off of the a believer onto the shoulders of the devil. The devil made me do it. The Flip Wilson idea. No, unbelievers have been blinded, but they brought that blindness on themselves. Their blindness is a part of the judicial punishment they have for rebelling against God. And, of course, the agent that God uses to blind the minds of the unbelievers is the devil, who will make people believe the most absurd and stupid things to keep them from believing in God. So they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. I think of that passage in Acts chapter 16 where Lydia gets saved, and in that passage Luke says, God opened her heart to believe. That's how you believe is when God opens your heart so that you can see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. If God doesn't do that, you're not going to see. And Christ is said here to be the image of God. Let me give you some good verses on that. The image of God, that means when you see the image, you see the, you see the, uh, the, the, the being that made the image. For example, when you look at yourself in a mirror, you see the image, and, and there's someone causing that image to be reflected in the mirror, which is you. So same, likewise with Christ. John, you see Christ, you're looking at God, because he is the image of God. John 14:9. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, look at Jesus if you want to see God. A lot easier to see Jesus because he was a man as well as God. God, the Father, is a little bit large for our comprehension. Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. You want to see God, you look at Jesus. Jesus is fully God. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, Jesus is, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Hebrews 1 and 3 and John 14 9 clearly say that Jesus is the image of God. Now we also know that we are the image of God because God created male and female. He created them in the image of God as we read in Genesis. So what's the logical conclusion of that? Man is in the image of God and Christ is in the image of God. So that means human beings in Christ, at least in our uh, innocent state and in our glorified state, we're, we are very close to each other in glory. Now the difference is, of course, is that redeemed and glorified humanity will not be God. They will not be Christ. But we will reflect the same glory that Christ has. Christ is God as well as man. We are only man. But redeemed and glorified man is in the image of God, as, and, it's, and, and Jesus is in the image of God. That shows how powerful the new creation, or how glorious and splendid the new creation is. The new cre Jesus is the new Adam. We are the body of the new Adam. And the new Adam is going to be manifested to the whole universe as a very, very glorious thing, is going to reflect the glory of God. Vessels of glory, I think Paul says in Romans 9. And so, and the glory, of course, is the public manifestation of the excellent characteristics of one, or splendor is another word that sometimes people use. It's kind of instinctive. You kind of, people instinctively know what that word means. But at any rate, the blinded souls of this age can't see the glory of Christ, but the people who look at Jesus, the glory of Christ, with unveiled faces can see the light of the gospel. And we get to see the image of God, which means we get to see God pretty much as is possible for human beings to see God. 
if you look into a mirror and see your image, you got you know pretty well what you look like. Pretty much what you look like. You look at Jesus, you know pretty much what God looks like. Because Jesus is the image of God. We go down to verse 5 of first, Second Corinthians 4. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. Now, of course, again, he's referring to his false apostles who are pushing themselves. They're preaching the gospel for profit. Talking about, I'm a big shot apostle, and so the Corinthians have divided themselves up into factions. I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas. And they were probably saying, I am a false apostle A and false apostle B, too. We don't know exactly, but Paul is saying, look, I'm not out here preaching myself. Now, he had to say this because he's constantly asserting his apostolic authority, and it sounds like he's bragging. Are we commending ourselves now? And then in, later on in Second Corinthians, he's going to talk about, I'm boasting. He says, I'm speaking like a madman because i got to boast about all the hard stuff I went through in order to be an apostle for you guys. So he has to boast in his apostleship, but he constantly, he's, he's boasting the Lord, not in his own flesh. There's tons of examples of that in these two letters. And this is just one more example. He's saying, look, I'm trying to be humble here. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm a minister of the new covenant. I'm much better apostle than my opponents are. But hey, it's not because I'm being braggadocious about it. It's because I'm a slave of Jesus. That's why I'm doing it. He says, I'm preaching my, Jesus and myself, ourselves, when he says ourselves, that's the editorial second person. He means himself. He's preaching himself as a slave because of Jesus. Now, Paul never pulled rank on the apostles. They had done all, on the Corinthians. They had done all kinds of terrible things, as we know. But he never said, look, because I'm your apostle and I started the church, you must do this, 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 and this. He never did that. Even with the case of the man sinning with, living with his stepmother, he said, I'm with you in spirit, but you are to kick him out of the church. He didn't say, I'm going to go kick him out of the church. Now, when he says he was a slave to the Corinthians, it was because of Jesus. Now, there's two ways you can read that. The K King James has your slave. He was a slave for the sake of Jesus, because of Jesus, because of his desire to do what Jesus is want. He was a, what Jesus wanted. He was a slave of the Corinthians. Or... It could be he was a slave because Jesus had caused Paul to become a slave of the Corinthians. Either way, Paul's a slave, and so you Corinthians ought to look at Paul's humble attitude. He's only in the ministry because of the love for the Corinthians. He's not doing it for money. He never took money from them, but other people were taking money from them for profit, marketing the gospel for profit, as he puts it in the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. Paul wasn't doing that. He was a slave. He was serving the Corinthians. Second Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is making a reference here to the creation narrative in Genesis. Genesis 1, verses 2 through 4, we read this. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So now in that first physical creation, there was light, and Paul's going to use that as a metaphor, an, an analogy, if you will, and talk about the second creation, the creation of the new birth, the new man, and there's light involved with that also. He's going to say, let there be light. Ho, ho, there's a born-again Christian. Now, here's some scriptures concerning the new birth, not the physical creation, creation of the world, but the new spiritual creation of Christians. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the old creation, of course, was the creation of the earth in Genesis one, and now we are a new creation. 
Old things have passed away, and look, old, new things have come. John three chapter, th- John chapter three verse three. Jesus replied, "I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, he's a new creation." John three seven. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. Of course, we're familiar with that phrase. Of course, born again. First Peter one three. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us a new birth. So there's the new creation, the new birth, just like the universe was born and there was light and now there's a new birth and there's going to be light with us too. He's going to get into the light metaphor in just a minute. Well, actually, not in just a minute, actually in this verse, because he says, just as God has said, let shine out of darkness when he created the physical world, This God has also shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. So that means when we get born again, we get regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Light shines in our hearts, and that light consists of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ? I think the easiest way to explain that is if you look in the face of Jesus Christ, you see God's glory because Jesus is the image of God, as we just said. So you want to know God's glory? Look at Jesus' face, and you'll see God's glory, because Jesus is God as well as man. Fully God, fully man. And of course, when you look in the face of Jesus Christ, you're looking without a veil, because we look with unveiled faces. There's nothing to obscure our vision of Christ, except our own sin, of course, and that sin has been taken away, and uh, legally declared uh, inoperative because of our justification. And in our sanctification, we progressively uh, get sin out of our lives, And so the more we do that, the clearer we look at Jesus' face, the clearer we see God. So Paul makes the analogy from physical light in the earthly creation to spiritual light in the new creation, the new birth. Now when Paul mentions the phrase, when he uses the phrase, God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that's reminiscent also of the verse we just read in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the glory of Christ, and if you think about glory, implies light. God is light. You see, you know, when you see splendor, you see a public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics. There has to be light in order to see that. And so Paul uses the light analogy in a couple of verses earlier in verse 4 and also in this verse in verse 6. The light of the knowledge of God's glory. So glory and light go together, and we see that light. We see God's glory and God's light by looking in the face of Jesus Christ, looking at Jesus and knowing him and knowing who, who he is. And, of course, when you look at somebody face to face, that means you know them. That's how, that's how human beings know each other. When they converse with one, another, with one another, they look at each other's face. Likewise, we look at Jesus' face so we can know him. We go to verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4. Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. And again, Paul is trying to deflect, trying to deflect from himself the idea that he's proud, proud in any way because of his apostleship. In fact, he says, no, I'm nothing but a clay jar. Nothing glorious about me, even though i got something glorious inside. He switches the metaphor from light inside the believer to treasure inside the believer. Now, it was the common custom back then to hide treasure in clay jars to avoid theft because people would look at the clay jar and say, well, that's nothing worthy, nothing valuable in there, and they'd leave it alone. So Paul uses that as a metaphor to say, I might not look like much, I might be short, and my speech might not be impressive, but by golly, in me, I got gold and silver and diamonds and platinum. 
So let's don't think that anything that we have in the gospel is because of our natural ability. It's because of Jesus in us. That's something that every Christian has to learn in the beginning years of his walk, that his natural powers given to him, natural abilities given to him have to be crucified so that the power might be, that he exhibits might come from God and not his managerial ability, his speaking ability, his intellectual ability, his financial ability, or whatever else it is. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, this clay jar idea represents Paul's human frailty and unworthiness. His absolute insufficiency of man reveals the total sufficiency of God, and that idea pervades the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, which is true. We go now to verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 4. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Again, Paul had a rough life. Notice as soon as he talked about the power of God in verse 7, he immediately then talks about the bad stuff he had experienced. Because the power of God is is not manifested except when you're in bad circumstances. The worse circumstances you, you're in, the more power of God is manifested when he delivers you from those circumstances. And notice Paul was always delivered. He was pressured but not crushed. He was perplexed but he wasn't in despair. He was persecuted but not abandoned. He was struck down but not destroyed. In other words, things looked bad but he, he came out on top every time. Now when Paul says he was persecuted but not abandoned, he meant not abandoned by Jesus. He was abandoned by people. Remember Demas who deserted Paul because he loved this world in 2 Timothy 4.10? So yeah, Paul was abandoned by humans, but he was never abandoned by God. Now when he says struck down, he what did he, had, he was beaten by rods twice, I think it was. He was stoned at Lystra on the first journey. We don't know when he was perplexed but did not spare. Well, he might have been perplexed at what the situation was in Corinth. He was obviously showing perplexity when he wrote 1 Corinthians trying to figure out why they were so screwed up. But he didn't spare. He didn't give up on them. He just kept right on pushing. He did not give up. He's going to mention that, not giving up in in two places in this chapter. He didn't give up despite how bad everything was. We go to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 11. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. Now there Paul makes the the comparison or the the connection between death and life. If you're going to have life in Jesus, you've got to have death in the flesh. And that is so fundamental to the gospel. He says we always carry the death of Jesus in our body. Some people have suggested that means he just carries the knowledge of death. I don't think so. Or he carries the doctrines of the sufferings and death of Jesus. Carries the death of Jesus in our body. Oh, no, in our body, that's not talking about it. That would be in his head. He carries the doctrines. I think that's foolish. What he's talking about here is he's carrying the death of Jesus in our body. Paul says that I've been persecuted just like Jesus. Jesus was beaten and, nailed and, and beaten on the day of his crucifixion. I've been beaten too. And of course, again, the ultimate reason behind all this is Paul is trying to assert his apostleship to the Corinthians say look I am being beaten for the gospel I've been beaten for you guys well even in Corinth he was persecuted because remember the people took him before the Gallio the Corinthian magistrate there in in first in Acts chapter 18 he got thrown in the prison because of him caring about the death of Jesus in his body and sacrificing himself for the Corinthians so he's talking about actual sufferings, actual afflictions that he experienced, just like Jesus did. Paul experienced them in his body, but also 
That could also be metaphorical for in his life. Because the apostles were traduced, they were called wicked, deceivers, stirrers up of sedition, they were persecuted, they were delivered up to death. So they suffered all kinds of persecution, both verbal and physical. But what was the purpose of them undergoing all that? Why would they put up with that? So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our bodies. So they, their bodies, and he could be referring to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, my body is being persecuted, but eventually the life of Jesus is going to be such that I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. I'm going to get a new body back, so I don't care if I'm being beaten. The life of Jesus is going to be revealed in my body when the world sees my resurrected body. Let me read verse 11 again. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus. We who live spiritually, we who are Christians, who are born again, we're always given over to death because of Jesus. And that just shows that you believe in Jesus, you're going to be persecuted in this world. That's just the way it is. The way it's always been, the way it's always going to be. But that given over to death because of Jesus, when you're persecuted because of Jesus, what's the result? So that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. We'll have life, whether it's the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world, or whether it's just life in general, in your, in, in your life. Whether in, in the course of your existence, life is going to be manifested, the life of Jesus. You were dead once and you're alive now. And that's manifested in many, many different ways by different Christians, different testimonies. But the, the, every testimony boils down to this. You were dead and you're alive now. Either you were financially dead or vocationally dead or spiritually dead or domestically dead or whatever. And Jesus gives you life. Adam Clark, in talking about the life that Paul had, when he says that the life would, uh, Jesus' life was revealed in his, in his flesh, Adam Clark speculates as to how that life was shown in Paul's flesh by the pre preservation of his life, by the success of his ministry, by the miracles that he was doing for whatever reason. Now we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. So death works in us, but life in you. Now that death that's working in Paul, that's talking about all the persecution he was receiving that's not the natural aging process as somebody as john gill suggests i don't believe that for a minute he's talking about the death that people were doing trying to kill him paul makes a great contrast here death in the in the in paul but life in the corinthians now there are two options as to what paul meant here was he saying that hey you corinthians i'm being sarcastic here i'm being a little bit ironic i'm dying for you guys but he you guys are living living it up with your false apostles over there to support that view, we can read 1 Corinthians 4, 8. Paul says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. So Paul's obviously being sarcastic there. He says, you're rich and living like kings, and I'm poor, living like a vagabond. Now, how did, why is that? He's trying to chastise them there. The other option is that Paul is serious here. He's saying, death has worked in me, so I can give life to you Corinthians. I tend to believe that that's Paul's not being sarcastic here, but he's being straight here. John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown agree with that. Here's a quote with John, from John Gill. Quote, Ours is the sorrow, the trouble, the affliction, and death itself. Yours is the gain, the joy, the pleasure, and life. What we get by preaching the gospel are reproach, persecution, and death. But this gospel we preach at such expense is the savor of life unto life to you and is the means of maintaining spiritual life in your souls and of nourishing you up unto eternal life. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believed and believe and therefore speak. Now Paul is quoting Psalm 106, 10, chapter 106, 
I'm sorry, chapter 116, verse 10, which says this, I believed even when I said I am severely afflicted. Now, the psalmist mentions affliction. Paul does not mention affliction. Paul mentions speaking, but the psalmist doesn't mention speaking. So Paul has only taken half the quotation, but that's the quote. All the scholars agree that this is the psalm he's referring to. NIV study Bible, John Gill, Jameson Fawcett, Brown, Albert Barnes. And what Paul is saying, well, let's just take what the psalmist is saying first. The psalmist was being afflicted, but he says, even though I'm suffering terribly, I still believe. I still believe in Jesus in the midst of my afflictions. And then Paul is saying the same thing. He's implying the same thing by quoting the psalm. He's saying, I still believe. In keeping with what is written, I believed. I believed in the midst of all my suffering, which he just mentioned in the previous verses about how he's dying so that the Corinthians might live. Bearing in his body the marks of Jesus, the dying of Jesus, and all. He's talking about all of his afflictions, just like the psalmist was. So Paul is saying, I'm afflicted, but I be- and therefore I spoke. Now, the speaking uh, is not mentioned in, so- in Psalms, but the idea is the psalmist, when he was afflicted, spoke that he still believed in, in God. He still had faith in God. And Paul is saying, I spoke in the midst of my affliction, but what my speaking was is the speaking of the gospel. So Paul used that psalm. Paul often does this, quotes verses from the Old Testament and uses them to his purpose and changes them a little bit as he goes to, changes the application of them a little bit as he goes to the New Testament. So Paul is saying, I suffered, but I'm speaking, just like that psalmist did. Notice how Paul, because he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was constantly making appeals to the Old Testament. He appealed to the Scripture, which is something that Christians today ought to do instead of appealing to emotions and only their personal testimony. Nothing with, wrong with appealing to your testimony, but if you only do that and you don't appeal to scriptures, you're not being you're being sub-biblical, if I can put it that way. When Paul says in verse 13, and since we have the same spirit of faith, he's identifying his faith with the psalmist, who was David, it, the same spirit of faith that David had in believing in the midst of affliction. We go now to 2 Corinthians verse 14, chapter 4. Paul continues, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. And again, he's appealing to the ultimate victory after all these sufferings and persecutions and tribulations and afflictions that Paul had. Well, the whole end of it is going to be, we're going to be raised up. That's the ultimate victory. And that's why these hyperpreterous heretics who go around saying that we're not going to have a physical resurrection at the end of the world are so abominable because they take away that ultimate victory that we have, the ultimate victory over death. Some people say that the resurrection here is not talking about the resurrection on Judgment Day, but it's when when Paul says that the Lord Jesus will raise us, it means raise us up out of our persecutions that we're suffering temporally in this world. I don't believe that for a minute. He's talking about the ultimate deliverance, which is resurrection from the dead. We go now to 2 Corinthians verse 15, chapter 4. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. Now, everything is for your benefit. That means, well, people debate a little bit about what that everything is. John Gill says it's everything that Christ has done, everything that Christ ministers has done. Everything that has been ministered to you spiritually is for your benefit. Well, that's true. Jameson Fawcett Brown adds not only the the workings of the ministers of the gospel, but also the afflictions that the Corinthians might suffer. That's for your benefit. Or the afflictions that the gospel preachers have suffered. That's for your benefit. It could mean that Everything is for your benefit means even your prosperity is for your benefit. Because Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, you're already full, you're already rich, you're reigning as king, so apparently things are going pretty good, except the problem with that is he was speaking sarcastically there, so I don't think he's talking, I think James Fawcett Brown's not right there. If 
they might have just mentioned that as an idea and not agreed with it. But I don't think that idea is right. I don't think it's talking about their prosperity. I think it's talking about all the spiritual benefits, all the spiritual labors that were done either by Christ or the apostles. Every, all of that was for the Corinthians' benefit. That's similar to another verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. There it was not one particular leader of a faction is yours, like Paul or Apollos or Cephas, but everything that every spiritual teacher has, every minister of the gospel has, is for your benefit. Paul says that grace was extended through more and more people from that preaching may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. This idea of answered prayer causing thanks and causing the extension of glory is also present in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. There Paul says this, While you join in keeping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. So there the idea is the Corinthians will pray for Paul, God will answer the prayers, Paul will end up showing the glory of God because of the answered prayer, and then many people will give thanks for that. So it goes from Corinthians to Paul to prayer, to thanksgiving. From grace, prayers from the Corinthians, it goes answered prayers to Paul, and then the answered Paul, the answered prayers to Paul will then cause people to give thanksgiving. Here in 2 Corinthians 4.15, it's the other way around. It's Paul prays for the Corinthians, God works in the Corinthians' life, and then people look at the church of Corinth and see how God's blessing them, and then they're going to give thanks. So it's the other way around. But the idea is answered prayer causes people to increase God's glory. It causes God's glory to increase, and it causes people to give thanksgiving for that, which then increases God's glory. So the idea is we're, Paul is saying we're all in this together. Let's quit dividing up into factions. Let's say thank God if something good happens to you from Christ's glory. Well, that's good. God God gets more glory because of that, and we can all thank God for it. Everything is for your benefit. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not give up. The therefore refers to chapter 4. Well, actually, the therefore means because everything is ex redounding to God's glory, as more thanksgiving is being given, as grace is being extended, as everything spiritual is being done for your benefit. Because of all that, we don't give up. So that's what keeps Paul going in the midst of persecution is when he sees the life of Christ working in his converts or in his churches. When he says, therefore, we do not give up, he repeats the same idea he had in verse 1, chapter 4 of Second Corinthians. Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. We don't give up because we've got the ministry of life, the new covenant minister. We are ministers of the new covenant, so we don't give up. We have this treasure in clay jars. Because of that, we don't give up because we're showing the light of Christ and the light of the glory of God, of God in the face of Christ and teaching people with unveiled face to look at Jesus. And because of that, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. And Paul, again, reverts here to the persecution he's being experiencing. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, that means when he gets whipped and gets laid on a stone jail floor, not getting fed very well and so forth. He said, well, that's my body. It's getting destroyed. But his inner person is being renewed day by day. They can't destroy the inner person. You keep believing in Jesus. It's hard for a persecutor to, to take that away from you. And Paul says, body's going down, my inner being is going up. Now that ought to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul was not a materialist. He believed that there was an incorporeal, incorporeal, incorporeal part of man that was in addition to the body, his inner person, as the Holman Christian Study Bible translates. It's being renewed day by day. It means it's getting stronger and stronger day by day. 
as the NIV Study Bible puts it, because of the inextinguishable flame of the resurrection life of Jesus burning within, his inner person is being renewed day by day. By the way, some people can read this, at least I used to do this too, even though our outer person is being destroyed, as referring to the natural aging process, that's not what Paul's referring to. He's referring to all the persecution he received. When Paul says, I do not give up, I wonder how many times Paul was tempted to give up with all the mess that he had. Remember he said in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 somewhere he says I have the sentence of death within me so that so that all that it had to be God uh, with the result that it, it was only God that could have saved him not himself but it only could be God he had the sentence of death within himself how many he said he's perplexed he was in this, but he didn't despair and all that you know all this hard stuff that was happening to him you wonder how many times he was tempted to give up and the fact that he mentions it twice in this chapter makes me think that he might have been tempted, like any human being would, to just give up. But then he thought about the glory of Christ. He said, nah, I'm going to keep going. Not going to quit. Now, why is he not going to quit? Because of this great verse in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Now, this, of course, is a very famous favorite verse of a lot of people but notice that our momentary light affliction paul has just been beaten mercilessly beaten with rods shipwrecked nights without sleep days without food dragged before magistrates stoned once and left for dead that's light affliction well in the absolute sense it's not light but in the relative sense compared to the god the glory that paul's going to get when he goes to heaven that's nah, nothing I guarantee he's forgotten about it right now. He's not thinking a bit about all that stoning and stuff that went and beatings that he underwent, which were pretty horrendous, by the way. We can read that and forget about how bad it was. I can't imagine how bad it was. But, hey, he's got an incomparable eternal weight of glory. Eternal means it ain't ever going away. Incomparable means there's nothing you can compare it to. He mentions this incomparable weight of glory in other scriptures, or at least Paul mentions it in one other scripture, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross. The cross was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to go through, the physical and mental suffering that Jesus went through. But the reason he did was for the joy that lay before him. So that's something we ought to always remember. When we talk to people about the sufferings of the Christian life, that needs to be talked about, but you should never, ever mention the joy, the, the sufferings without the joy that lays before. The result of the sufferings is an eternal weight of glory. Joy, and even Jesus, the same thing. He had joy laid before him. We go now to verse 18. We'll finish up 2 Corinthians 4. Paul continues. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again, he's talking about the eternal weight of glory. You can't see it. He's not focused on what he can see, which is all the persecution and all the garbage that's in the world. But he's focusing on heaven. And Christians need to always do that because it's the easiest thing in the world to focus on this life. We need to be focused on the next life. What is unseen? What is eternal? The things which are seen, as the NIV Study Bible says, are painful and perplexing experiences which might want induce one to give up. Or the things which are seen could be honors, pleasures, and profits, as John Gill says. But those things don't mean a thing. What matters is what is unseen, the eternal weight of glory. Here's some scriptures we'll finish up with. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
Well, faith is how we see what is unseen. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. We know that what is not seen is true because we believe in Jesus. Hebrews 11:27. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. That's talking about Moses. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. In other words, it's just like Moses could see God because of his faith, because by faith he left Egypt behind. So by faith he could see the invisible God. He could see that which is unseeable, God. And that's how we live. We live by faith, the substance of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, faith. We do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In our next audio, in, we'll cover chapter 5. We'll start with chapter 5 at least and talk about that which is unseen, that which is eternal in the heaven. He's talking about a physical body in heaven where we will not be unclothed. Hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.